Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. In the second half of today's show, we're talking fish fries. That's on Prairie Plates with Rick Yone. And I'm flying solo to... I'm not flying solo today. I'm here with Ashley Thornburg. And I'm not flying at all. <laughs> you should be saying hola. I be should be saying hola. I am supposed to be in Costa Rica at this very moment. But do you hear this? This noise. I hear a chilling of story. The wind. Yes. Well, you know how it was 55 degrees and sunny on Monday, and it has been unseasonably warm all through January and February. Well, then we had that. One stinking little snowstorm, uh, and it screwed up a lot of flights, uh, presumably for many people around this area. And since there are quite a few of us going on this trip together, it was just harder to rebook. So instead of heading out to Costa Rica yesterday, I'm heading out on Friday. Well, we're happy that you're here because <laughs> you get to bring us a good story about stuff. STEM education, but so much more. Yes, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, all good subjects for a well-rounded education, and certainly some subjects where certain populations of people have been underserved. Imagine this, Craig, being the first person in your family to even consider moving out of state and getting an advanced higher ed degree. It's a hard path, but one that Jana Lockwood feels good about now, thanks to her work with InSTEM, or Indians in STEM. Valley City State University hosts Native American students for in-depth STEM training. And in addition to hearing from Jaina, we'll also hear from the director, Dr. Jamie Wirth from Valley City State University. Jaina, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really grateful to be chosen to be speaking for InSTEM Academy. Dr. Wirth, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, very much. Thank you for having me. Jaina, not to put you on the spot, but I've never actually been told uh, that someone feels grateful to speak on behalf of a program. So that, to me, shows how meaningful this program has been to you. Why do you use a word like grateful? I use grateful because INSTEM really taught me how leadership skills, and then it's something I really look forward to during the summer break of my school year. Like, it gives me an opportunity to learn about college life, campus life, and then it makes me really connect with my friends around me who share the similar interests, and it really makes me feel connected to the ones around me. When you use a term like leadership skills, can you give us a few more details? Is it about comfort in the classroom or speaking skills, or, or what does the word leadership mean to you? To me, I feel like it's comfort in the classroom and being able to speak and lead a team. Because during InSTEM, you will be in groups, and then you and your group will be able to study something, and then you can work together towards presenting it at the end of the year mm. or end of the camp. Yeah. So how does it compare to, for want of a better term, a normal school situation for you? It really helps me, like, um, talk to others and whenever I'm placed into a new group of people like I hear I am in Minot it helps me really lead on with others because normally people here in Minot have their friend groups mm. so I don't really fit in but when I talk to people I really use the leadership skills I learned from InSTEM to like really lead conversations and tell them 
how life is in Newtown. Dr. Worth, let's bring you into the conversation here because it sounds like it goes a lot deeper than just teaching science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a typical in-STEM experience is only four days long every summer. So, of course, there's no way we can get deep into a lot of math curriculum or science curriculum or, or things like that. I mean, that's what the, the regular school year and the K-12 system is for. So what we're really uh, focused on is just helping students have, you know, increased self-efficacy, some confidence, um, maybe uh, spark uh, a few ideas in their mind about what they might want to do uh, with maybe college or as a career or what they're capable of doing or, you know, just what are some of the things that are out there that they, they might not even be familiar with. So it's, while it's a, while it's an academy and we do academic things, I would say the, the focus on it is really about that confidence, that, mm. that self-efficacy and um, just getting students interested in the STEM areas. Yeah. So how does the actual in-STEM program work? Well, we, uh, we've been kind of evolving over the years. Uh, we started in 2018, and we make some changes every year. Uh, but basically, the students come in on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, we do some icebreaker activities and some team-building activities, and they stay all the way until Thursday afternoon. So they, they spend their, their nights uh, living right in the residence hall, right on campus, just uh, like where the college students would live. Um, they eat their meals at the at the cafeteria on campus. They have their academic sessions right in the classrooms and labs, uh, right on the VCSU campus. So what we really try to do is kind of give them a taste of that college experience. They get to live like a college student for four days. Hmm. And we just run them through a variety of activities. And, and each year is a different curriculum, if you will. So Starting out uh, their very first year, we usually start them as sixth grade completers or students who are going into the seventh grade the following year. And we give them kind of a, a survey of different uh, STEM activities. They might spend two hours in a chemistry lab doing something, and then they might spend a couple hours building a bridge. And then they might spend a couple hours uh, doing some computer coding or something like that. Um, and then um, in our second year, we focus on careers. Uh, we'll take some field trips to, we've been to Microsoft, we've been to Bobcat Doosan, uh, we've been to Aldevron in Fargo. We go out to uh, our Prairie Waters Education and Research Center. Mm. The whole idea there is to uh, expose students to lots of different career fields. And then as they come back for their third and their fourth year, we have different experiences for them every year so that each year is unique. Jaina, give us your experience, because if I uh, am correctly informed, you have done this multiple years now. How has it been different for you uh, to build and, and grow during a successive sort of education program like this? I've been attending STEM Academy practically every year. It's me and one other girl, hmm. I believe. And each year I like how there's something new and there's something different for me to do. It feels like an entirely new experience. And then when we focus on our second year in college careers, that really hit me off. I really liked going to the 
Perry and Eldevron. Mm. And I've never been to any of those places. So it was like a whole new experience for me. And it opened up so many new opportunities for me. This last year, when we were evolving a little bit, I participated in a sonar thing during our into our rivers and lakes. And that really was, it was amazing. That's, it was like, I've never felt connected to something like that before. And it was just like, it felt so nice because each activity is in a different setting. So I was basically on the water almost every single day. And it was just so nice just being out there and being open. What did you think college was going to be like prior to participating in a program and and how has this shaped maybe now how you think about college um I used to think about college like as a simple kind of like high school but not the dorms I never really knew about dorms or anything like that Mm. and then I never really knew college campuses could be so big because the one in Newtown is like right dead center kind of it's almost as big as the high school like everything in Newtown is the same size because of our student count and then I didn't know that uh college could give me so many like opportunities because I feel like there's so many classes and so many choices that you can make that's personalized to you and then now that I lived and had some experience on college campus at BCSU I know What's it? what it's like to roam about campus, to mm-hmm. go to certain classes. And then you can basically, like, bond with others because they're the communal area. And I thought that was really nice. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you can do that. <laughs> Realizing that you are still awfully young in high school, uh, which just the way that you're speaking, it, it's hard to believe you're still in high school. But do you bring this back to your friends and family in in Newtown and and talk about how this program works? I do actually a lot. I convinced my youngest sister to attend Instem as well. And I'm hoping she'll do her third year there this year. She loves going to VCSU because it's like a whole new experience for her. And then we just bond together talking about Instem and then I'll just ask, (laughs) how did you like it? And she'll tell me she really liked it, and she loves bringing her friends with, too. Like, I'll tell her something about it, and then she'll just talk about it with her friends and just spread the word. That's Gina Lockwood. She is one of the students participating in the In-STEM program administered by Valley City State University, and In-STEM is Indians into STEM. It hosts Native American students for in-depth STEM training. We're also in conversation with Dr. Jamie Worth, a professor at Valley City State University and the InSTEM advisor. Dr. Worth, before we started recording the conversation, uh, you and Jaina were talking and I was really struck by, um, you know, the way that you said, hi, Jaina, how are you? And then she said, Jamie, and it's wonderful. Um, Talk about the personal relationship, even just being comfortable with somebody calling you Jamie instead of Dr. Worth. Yeah, the the personal connection is is a huge part of this. Uh, When we started this program back in 2018, it was just a pilot program. And we started it with 12 students 
from Newtown, and Gina was one of those 12. And um, those students have been back, you know, every year. Gina's been here four times now, and now we missed a couple of years because of COVID. But Gina's been here, um, you know, every year that she's been able to come along with a couple of her classmates. So uh, not only do we get to know the students, you know, right away uh, when they come, but when they come back each year, pretty soon we're just on a first name basis. Hmm. And, um, you know, for example, Gina and I share emails about whatever. Gina's already told me about what her college plans are and what she wants to do after high school and her aspirations. And, and those are the kind of relationships we're really interested in. And, and that's part of the reason why we have this set up as a, a cohort program is if you come, you know, the summer after you completed sixth grade, uh, assuming you had a successful experience and you enjoyed that experience, we want you to come back the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year. And that's how those relationships get formed. And we really believe that uh, having students come back year after year after year just strengthens all of that, um, strengthens their confidence, their self-efficacy. Um, I think Gina is a perfect example of that. And uh, it's not just Gina. We've had many other students that are in a similar situation to her. And I, I love the fact that she recruited her younger sister, Angel, to come. Um, that's just awesome. And, and that's the kind of relationships we want to build. Dr. Wirth, let's talk about relationships on a different level here, because there is an element of cultural competency. How do you, as a white man, make yourself available to understanding that the students that you have come from oftentimes very different cultural backgrounds. They might have uh, a very different relationship with the land and land stewardship and the, the, the different way that resources get used or even... And you probably don't get into spiritual practices uh, in this program, although please correct me if I'm wrong. But how do you make sure that you have done the work to meet the kids where they are at? That's a great question. And I'm glad you asked that because that's part of uh, the evolution, if you will, of our of our program. I would argue that when we started in 2018 with that first group of 12 students, we had almost no uh, cultural relevance in our curriculum or our experiences. Um, and now fast forward about six years later, uh, we've implemented all kinds of things. Uh, starting with a, a few years ago, we made a partnership with Lisa Lonefight, who works for the MHA Nation um, Science and Technology Office, uh, to have her help us a little bit with some of the cultural components of the, not only just the academic content, but some of the social things and whatnot. Uh, last year, for the very first time, we brought in First Nations consultant, a gentleman by the name of Ricky White and uh, Melody Stabner, who works for Fargo Public Schools, specifically with uh, Native American education. Uh, they were able to come in and meet with all of our students uh, for a really excellent session just on you know, the Native American culture and how that fits into the education landscape. Um, the students and the faculty and staff were so impressed with what Ricky and Melody were able to bring. Um, we are definitely bringing them back again this year. In fact, we uh, we just sort of booked them a couple days ago uh, to come again this summer. We also engaged uh, the help of our VCSU uh, Director for uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Dr. Kelly LaFramboise, who's right on our campus here. 
Um, she's done sessions with the students and has, has helped out the faculty and staff. And we are in the process of lining up some additional um, content for this summer through the, uh, um, it's, a, it's a North Dakota uh, Native American elders website and some kind of uh, cultural and diversity training that we're gonna line up through North Dakota DPI and some others that I was just working on yesterday. So um, it's evolving. We're, we're trying to get better and better at, um, you know, not only providing an academic and kind of a college campus experience for the students, but tying in that uh, cultural aspect as much as we can. Gina, early on in our conversation, you talked about living in Minot now and finishing up uh, your schooling there and talking about what it's like to explain life in Newtown to people in Minot. So walk us through, how do, how do you sell Newtown to people? I see that it's a pretty small community of students who are working together. Um, I've never really talked to the adults in Newtown. I normally stay in school and do my work. So when they ask how it was like in Newtown, I say, oh, it was like really small and Everyone just was stuck together. Like, my graduating class this year has 400 plus seniors, but back in Newtown, there's like 40 seniors who are graduating, mm -hmm. which is a big shock to me. And I tell them, no, I've stuck with the same kindergarten class every year. And we really knew everything about each other. Hmm. Gina, what would you change? about how the in-STEM program works if you were in Dr. Wirth's role? Mm, that's a hard question because I thoroughly enjoy everything I do there. I feel like I would want to make it a little longer though. Hmm. It just feels really nice to be on campus and meeting a lot of new people and meeting the same people each year. Like I, I always wish it was longer. <laughs> Dr. Worth, talk to us about the application process. You have a round of applications for the summer program due April 15th? Yep. This is the first year that we've actually opened up uh, in-STEM opportunity to application. In previous years, when we started as the pilot program, um, like that very first year, we just started with the Newtown students, and those students didn't necessarily apply. They, they were just kind of self-selected by their school district and recruited, and they got on a bus, and they came to us. Um, in our second year in 2019, we added Eight Mile School District in Trenton, North Dakota. And again, the teachers and uh, administration at, at Newtown in Trenton would just recruit the students internally and then bring the students to us. Starting this year, summer of 2024, we have implemented an application process where any Native American student uh, who has completed sixth grade or higher is eligible to apply. So it, it's definitely part of the evolution of our program. We've already gotten um, some applications, uh, even though we're still early in the application window, we've already gotten some from schools outside of Newtown and Trenton, which is great. Um, we're certainly hoping to get more. Uh, we do have a, a, a certain capacity of what we can handle as far as space in the residence halls and the number of faculty that we have. Um, so unfortunately, we might not be able to accept all applications, depending on how many applications we get. 
uh, based on our capacity. But the, the application process is based on merit. We have the students uh, not only, you know, give us their regular information, like their name and their email address and stuff like that, but um, we ask them to write a paragraph about why they want to participate in InSTEM. And we ask them to, um, you know, tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us what your interests are. Um, what are your future goals? Uh, what do you want to do after high school? Uh, things like that. And then we also uh, require them to have a recommendation completed on their behalf. So they need to get a hold of whether it's a counselor or a coach or a teacher, and they need to provide the contact information for that uh, recommender. And then we send that recommender uh, a form to fill out on the student's behalf. And they can rate the student on their maturity, on their, um, you know, their ethical decisions and their behavior and their, and how they, how they are in the classroom and their academic preparation and things like that. So it's a it's a fairly rigorous process. Um, although we've we've made the the application hopefully student friendly, so that uh, it's not too troublesome to fill out. Um, and we realize it might be a little bit more difficult for younger students who are just getting done with sixth grade. So we encourage. <laughs> yeah, that's a, asking a, quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, we encourage uh, like an adult or a parent or or somebody to maybe help some of the younger students uh, fill in the application. But, um, you know, some of our older students, my hunch is Jana didn't have anybody assist her with filling out her application. She was probably able to do it on her own just fine. <laughs> Jana, what are your college plans? When I graduate high school this year, I plan on taking a gap year just to, like, get my driver's license, get a quick job and then some money and then learn a little more about college life. Because I will be the first kid in my family to be going out of state for college. Mm. Everyone in my family has gone to like community college or somewhere close near to Newtown. But I plan on going to like Oregon or Texas for college, which is a really far away. It's a lot on me because I struggle with having to leave for mm. so long. Because I plan on getting my doctorate in marine biology and such. So I'm going to be away for a long time. And I want to sort of get prepared for the year before I leave. That's Jaina Lockwood, one of the multi-year participants in Valley City State University's in-STEM program, which aims to get Native American students in for in-depth STEM training. Thank you so much for your time today, Jaina. Mm-hmm. We've also been visiting with Dr. Jamie Wirth, the in-STEM advisor at Valley City State University, and you can find out more about the application process at vcsu.edu slash in-STEM. Dr. Wirth, thank you so much for your time today. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Still to come, an excerpt of the Great American Folk Show, Tom Brousseau visits with Edward O'Keefe. That's after this. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Folk singer and songwriter Tom Brousseau, host of the Great American Folk Show on Prairie Public, visits with Edward O'Keefe, who explores Theodore Roosevelt's legacy and the creation of his presidential library. Edward O'Keefe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. TR has a history in most of our North Dakota towns. You went to Red River High School. The mascot is Teddy Roosevelt. There was a Roosevelt Elementary School not too far from there. But 
in your pursuit uh, of writing this book, The Loves of Theodore Roosevelt, your opinion of him must have changed greatly. What was your impression of Theodore Roosevelt before? Well, I, I love that you brought that up. I mean, I guess it was preordained. I was a rough writer, so I had to at some point um, embrace TR in my life. I, I like to say that uh, to those not from North Dakota, when you're born in North Dakota, you get your birth certificate and your choice of heroes, Lawrence Welk, Peggy Lee, Roger Maris, or Theodore Roosevelt. I chose TR. <laughs> Maybe you chose Peggy Lee. That's, that explains the Great American Folk Show. But so much is written about Theodore Roosevelt being the product of his own will. And, and that is true. That's, that's true. But it's also not the whole truth. There is more to the story. When I started researching this book, I wanted to write about Theodore Roosevelt in the Badlands. I wanted to take that story of recovery and resilience, of healing, and tell it in a more emotional and emotive way. And I have to tell you, I started doing the research. It's an extraordinary story. It's certainly been a part of a lot of stories and books about TR. And I kept bumping into the women. I, I would find this note from Bammy to TR, giving him some very strategic advice or I would find some incredible letter from Mitty where she's showing this, this vivacious personality. And then this treasure trove of material around Alice that really hadn't been the subject of a lot of exploration. I mean, most biographers write Alice off as a Victorian waif, as somebody who had no influence over TR's future. And yet in 1880, TR is writing an effusive declaration of equality between women and men. I, so I just, I felt like, wow, here is a person who is known for this hyper-masculine reputation, for good reason. He did incredibly daring, somewhat crazy things throughout his life. He lived a great life of strenuous adventure, and those are fabulous stories to explore. But wow, look at this emotional side where he makes these connections with these powerful women. He treats them as equals long before society or politics did. And doesn't that say something even more interesting about this incredibly complex president? I like the idea of Theodore Roosevelt as a self-made man. I think it's an inspiring story. I love him even more knowing that at points in his life, needed help. And I wanted to write about those people who helped Theodore Roosevelt become the great person we all admire today. Edward O'Keefe, the CEO of Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library, visiting with us today. Well, some of your past jobs include both reporter and producer at ABC. Uh, you worked with Anthony Bourdain on Parts Unknown, for which you won an Emmy. You were founding editor-in-chief of the media startup Now This, a Harvard grad to boot. While it seems you were poised to become the CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library, was this a position that you were striving for in life? <laughs> no, <laughs> I can tell you honestly. I had no thought that I would ever be leading the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library Foundation. And I'm a, a TR historian and a, an admitted TED head. So it just felt like this was one of those once-in-a-lifetime providential opportunities. It really did feel like this was one of those universe telling you, you must go in this direction moments. I was researching what became the book. I was 
thinking about what I wanted to do next in my career. Uh, you said in that very kind introduction, I've worked at ABC News and, and now this and at CNN. And there I was at this kind of juncture in my life and career. And I meet somebody from my home state who says there's this amazing, ambitious project. We have no money, we have no architect, and we have no land. But other than that, I think it's going to be a sure thing. Why don't you come on board? North Dakota and North Dakotans seem primed to believe in this idea. They just needed to see a little more of a plan. And I thought, I have no qualifications for this. I come from media. But one thing I do know how to do is tell a story. And so we, we started by telling a story. The story is Medora. Medora is this magical place where oh, it's, it, that is where history happened. You can feel it around you. It is this, this crosswinds of indigenous American history and Manifest Destiny and Theodore Roosevelt, the Marquis de Moore, all of these incredible, exceptional moments that collide in this Western meets Eastern town. And I thought, this is a story that America needs right now. We need to look back to understand our past, but also to inform our present and make a better future together as Americans. I mean, that's Theodore Roosevelt doesn't need a presidential library, but America needs a Theodore Roosevelt presidential library because this is somebody that brings people together. It reminds us all of civic responsibility and that, that we are all Americans first. And I, I think that's what I've found so inspiring about the project and why I just couldn't resist. Some of the milestones you've hit since the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library was first proposed include raising $100 million, uh, no easy thing, securing the site in Medora, North Dakota, and, and also getting the blessing of the Roosevelt family who are among your top supporters. What milestones lay ahead? So some, some highlights of, to come. The mass timber and steel is going to arrive in March of 2024, just a couple of, just a month away. This summer, they're going to begin the construction of the rammed earth walls, and the roof will actually begin to appear in November of 2024. Then it's about a year of work on the interior before we can get the exhibits team inside to begin installing those immersive, interactive, almost theatrical experiences that are really going to transport you throughout Theodore Roosevelt's life. And they're going to work on those for about a year until our anticipated opening of July 4th, 2026, which is the 250th anniversary of America and the Declaration of Independence. A very significant date. How do you think the library will add to the North Dakota experience? Well, I, I mean, I've heard people say to me quite often in state and, and outside of it, what Mount Rushmore is to South Dakota, the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library will be to North Dakota. And I, I say thank you. I appreciate that. That is wonderful. But I, I slightly correct them and say Medora will be to North Dakota, what Mount Rushmore is to South Dakota. There was a reporter out in Medora in last October, and she turned to me at some point and said, Medora is a sleeping giant, and it's about to wake up. This is where history happened. Edward O'Keefe, author of The Loves of Theodore Roosevelt, due out May 7th on Simon & Schuster, and also 
the CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. Thank you so much for visiting with me today. Hey, Tom. It was great to be with you. And for those that want to love the Theodore Roosevelt, available for pre-sale now. We've got it over at Zambros and Fargo. We've got it at Ferguson Books and Bismarck. And our good friend Doug Ellison at the Western Edge is carrying the book in Medora. So hopefully you can find it in North Dakota and wherever you like to buy books. Ragtime piece that you're hearing right now, that's Scott Joplin. And the title of it comes from a Theodore Roosevelt speech, one that he gave in 1899 in Chicago, Illinois. The speech is called The Strenuous Life. One of the lines from that speech is, I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life. Anyway, when Scott Joplin heard this speech, he was really moved by it, so he decided to write the song entitle it The Strenuous Life. That's one of two songs composed by Scott Joplin in honor of Theodore Roosevelt. And a couple years later, Joplin wrote another piece of music, a ragtime opera. He was, again, very moved by President Roosevelt. Roosevelt invited civil rights activist Booker T. Washington to the White House. Well, he named the title of that second one, A Guest of Honor. Find and follow your tradition Saturdays at 5 o'clock on Prairie Public. That's when the Great American Folk Show airs. Next, something fishy. It's on Prairie Plates. Stay with us. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. You're listening to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and now for the toughest assignment of the week, talking about food with Rick Guion for Prairie Plates. Rick, thanks for joining us today. Good to be back with you. All right, fish fries. Now, this is something that happens every Lenten season, but, you know, I was driving in Grand Forks this past weekend. I checked out the Fighting Hawks, and I noticed that Culver's had a sign for Canadian walleye sandwiches, and I remember sort of thinking... I have not noticed fast food restaurants having fish fries, and maybe I just don't pay that much attention to fast food restaurants, but wondering if if you have noticed this kind of thing too. Well, first of all, good weekend for the Fighting Hawks. I'm working on a graduate degree, master's degree at UND, so good weekend for them. But (laughs) yes, and that was a fun hockey game to watch, both of those Friday and Saturday. But yes, Culver's has... uh, fish fry wallet you can get it uh pretty much full time there and it's getting very good reviews on my fargo moorhead eats facebook group page hmm. and so it, it might be worth checking out i really like the burgers there but traditionally fish fries are more on fridays and because of kind of a catholic tradition and that sort of thing right but not yeah. eating meat on fridays yes, during ex- the lenten season exactly okay Yes, and so, but it's good to see Culver's, and I I see a lot of good reviews on that, so that's something I definitely need to check out, as well as a bunch of other places. <laughs> Friday night, I'm not going to the hockey game Friday night. I'm going to go check out a bunch of fish fries, so I would like some suggestions <laughs> from folks if they're church basement dinners, Catholic churches. Oh, I love it. 
or if they're just places folks really like and please send me around the state i don't really i will drive for food and <laughs> Well, you can send an email to plates at prairiepublic.org. We would love also to, uh, you know, have Rick keep stuff in his face, yes. <laughs> essentially, especially with those small town <laughs> ones, because honestly, like that's really where it's at for the, the epitome of doing these things. Well, is that fair to say? It is. And our friend Tom Ezern, uh, Dr. Tom Ezern, he scoped out a lot of these places throughout the Midwest region. And so I really should have contacted him about this segment. So, Tom, <laughs> if you're listening, give me a call. Tom, you... send an email to plates at prairiepublic.org. <laughs> yes, please do. And uh, But, yeah, I'll probably be calling him maybe a little later in the week here to uh, to get some suggestions for Friday. But, but yeah, the small-town Catholic churches, that's kind of where it's at, uh, th- those communities that are that have those large Catholic populations. Well, yes. let me ask you this, Rick. Would you, I don't want to say judge, but would you would you eat a fish sandwich or, or go to, you know, any kind of fish dish kind of thing with different expectations out of a fast food restaurant versus a small town church? Like, would you expect just very different fish and eat them accordingly? Or do you kind of expect the same thing? No, I think that... Uh, fish needs to be if it's a good fish fry i think uh it it needs to be hand battered or hand breaded and use fresh fish obviously it seems like cod pollock walleye perch sometimes you see sunfish but you really see cod pollock and walleye those are kind of the top three around here uh hand breaded and or hand battered that's the big thing i like a baked potato with a lot of sour cream and butter i know that's not oh (laughs) yeah most people do the you know the chips which we would call fries of course yes and i like those fries fresh cut i i think that really makes a difference and And do you like thick cut or thin i like thick cut and please fry the fish and the potatoes at the right temperature because (laughs) if you fry it too hot it's going to get scorched or if you fry it and it's too low it's just going to it's just going to soak up a bunch of grease and be like a sponge and that's just not not good so please watch your (laughs) temperature thermometer that's just my suggestion from Mm -hmm. a guy that likes to fry fish but uh, there are a lot more professional people that fry fish especially in these church basement dinners than me that have been doing it for decades i'm sure yeah well what else do you need to know i'm trying to think i've done it a couple times and i feel like it was an egg wash and then flour and then egg and then the batter or the breading yeah yeah you can do a lot of different techniques i mean i've done like catfish where i've soaked it in milk for a while to take Mm. away some of the muddy flavor i've done that with pike walleye that sort of thing and that will make um, a, a breading breadcrumb adhere to it a little bit better. But yeah, like the old school French where you're doing the the kind of the flour egg wash and uh, breadcrumb that that works really well. Or if you're my friends at Beer and Fish, they they fry their cod. They'll put cornstarch on it first, which with mm. and this is a secret and maybe I shouldn't say, but they put a little breadcrumb on it. And then they'll dip it in the beer batter. Okay. And that makes it adhere to the fish. And beer and fish here in downtown Fargo is extraordinary. It's awesome. (laughs) They know what they're doing. Bert and Klaus over there, they know what they're doing. Oh, nice. Uh, Does it matter what kind of fish for a fish fry? Well, 
No, as long as it's fresh. I, I, I don't know. You see cod, pollock, and walleye quite a bit. Uh, perch sometimes. I've seen that down in the Minneapolis area a little okay. bit. Um, I mean, I've never seen like a, an ahi tuna steak seared with sesame seeds or anything. Yeah, so you make a good point there. Yeah, tuna, I, I don't know about salmon, some of the trouts. I, I don't think. Uh, just use a good whitefish. That would be my suggestion. So, yes, you make a very good point there. <laughs> All right. Well, how about for fries or for the baked potato? But we'll start with fries because that's more common. Uh, frying at the right temperature, which is what? And then what other kind of tips to make those good? I've never successfully made fries. Yeah, fries you need to double blanch, and that's where I oh. used to work in restaurants and at Outback Steakhouse made, this was in the late 90s, but we made the fries from scratch every day, and it was a double blanch. So you would fry them at a lower temperature for a while, at like 300, 325, and then they'd go in the walk-in for a little while until they were ready to fry. So they were actually double fried, mm. and it makes them much more crispy. The interior is very fluffy. Double blanch method is used in restaurants. It's kind of the standard if you're going to be doing fresh cut fries. That's just the thing. You want to have the right potato, right? They don't just all fry properly. Yeah, a lot of people will use russets. There are other people that, like, I know that JL Beers downtown has specific potatoes. McDonald's has specific potatoes. A lot of McDonald's potatoes are grown in western Minnesota, and they do have specific potato varieties depending on starch level and that sort of thing, moisture Mm. level. So I'm not a potato expert, but yes. (laughs) It's very, it can be very specific, yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, But you like a baked potato. Why is that? Because I just like a baked potato with fish fry. I used to go to Wisconsin a lot when I was in high school and junior high with some friends. Their parents lived there and they had like a nice lake cabin in Wausau, Wisconsin. And we used to go to Friday night fish fries all the time and I loved it. Fell in love with it really and I was hoping it would come back here and it's starting to get a little bit bigger. But there you do get a baked potato a lot or hash browns those two things mm. which i thoroughly enjoy so <laughs> yes well set us up now again we're looking for people to email suggestions to plates at prairiepublic.org but you have tried a few across the state give us a quick list anyway yeah and actually i wanted to mention that i saw a press release from the catholic diocese of bismarck recently about mandan fish fries and the uh, Knights of Columbus kind of moving around their fish fry operation in Mandan uh, throughout February and and early March uh, during Lenten season. Uh, So I thought that was really neat, culturally significant. But yeah, in Fargo here, Beer and Fish Company always has fried fish and it's always good. So I'd check that out. But like Toasted Frog is in Grand Forks in Fargo. I noticed they're doing a fish fry I went to Unicorn Park Fine Foodery in Brujala here in Fargo recently. That's quite good. Friday, I'm going to go to the Fargo VFW for their fish fry, the VIP catering. Anthony is going to be doing one there. And I would suggest checking out service clubs across the state, other service clubs like that, your VFW, your legions, that sort of thing. Uh, Blarney Stone has places in Bismarck and Fargo, and their cod fried fish is that's really good. Lucky's 13 is also in Bismarck and Fargo. And then um, Culver's is around the state. So you'll find Culver's all over the state, really. And that's been getting really good reviews on my uh, food page. So, yes. 
All right. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this. And again, if you have a suggestion for where Rick specifically can go try a fish fry, although I'm fairly certain, Rick, it's safe to say suggestions for where to eat anywhere on your travels across the state, send an email to plates at prairiepublic.org. We check in with Ricky on four Prairie Plates once a week. Thank you, Rick. You're welcome. Scientists are cloning genetically modified pigs with organs designed to be transplanted into people. Every cell in the body of this animal has those same genetic modifications. NPR gets a first look into One Farm's operations on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. 4 a.m. to 9 central here on Prairie Public. Support for Dakota Datebook is provided by Books on Broadway and Dakota Soda and Coffee Company of Williston, featuring coffees and a wide variety of books for children and adults. Books on Broadway, the independent bookstore for independent minds. This is Dakota Datebook for February 28th. North Dakota is located in the center of North America and experiences what is called a continental climate. One feature of this climate is the unpredictable weather patterns. A cold Alberta clipper can occur in early spring or late autumn. Hot summer weather can turn up as early as May or as late as October. North Dakota is far enough north to experience 60 degree below zero temperatures in the winter, but far enough south for temperatures in the high 90s during the summer. In some winters, North Dakota has to endure the polar vortex that sends frigid Arctic air over the state for extended periods, while other winters are notably mild. In the early part of the 20th century, this reputation for extreme weather was seen as discouraging for development in the state. Stories of frigid winters were blamed for deterring people from relocating to North Dakota. On this date in 1907, the Williston Graphic applauded the newly formed Northwestern North Dakota Federation. The purpose of the group was to counter reports of severe weather that led to deaths by freezing. These reports had been broadcast across the country gaining national attention. Members of the Federation acknowledged that the recent winter was unusually severe, but most of the reports of death by freezing were false and gave people the wrong impression of North Dakota. In several cases, people who were supposedly frozen to death were found to be very much alive. While acknowledging the severity of North Dakota winters, the newspaper noted, the purpose of the organization is an excellent one, and every citizen of North Dakota who has the welfare of the state at heart should assist in running these fish stories to earth. The National Weather Service has been tracking storms since 1890. Many winter storms have plunged temperatures into the frigid range, dumped large amounts of snow, and resulted in massive damage as well as loss of life. While reports of the North Dakota winter of 1906-1907 may have been exaggerated, the state turns up several times on a list of the most devastating winter storms. The state's winter reputation is not, however, one-sided. One travel site describes North Dakota winter as a wonderland with light snowfalls throughout the season. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Dr. Carol Butcher. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from Humanities North Dakota.
Hi, I'm John Donvan. It might feel like the country is being torn apart right now and that there's no room for civil conversation anymore. I would argue, not so. On the program I host, Open to Debate, there is still a place for spirited, respectful, persuasive dialogue that might even change your mind on an issue or two. And that's a throwback we can all use these days. Listen to Open to Debate, now on Sundays at 5 p.m. Central, 4 Mountain, on member-supported Prairie Public. If home is where the heart is, where do you long to be? For American Pam Petro, she finds that she flourishes in Wales. Sometimes we have to travel in order to find home. Jacob Mikanowski has noticed that people in Poland are leaving their former Eastern European label behind. You become Eastern European when you leave. Redefine yourself on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tonight at 8 Central, 7 Mountain, here on Prairie Public. That's it for this Wednesday edition of Main Street. On today's All Things Considered, living in the age of climate-driven disasters is incredibly difficult. And now add on to that the financial strain of being in college. We hear from college students in the face of climate change. And tonight on Travel with Rick Steves, sometimes you have to travel in order to find home. Are you hearing me, airlines? <laughs> I'm trying to travel. Redefine yourself on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Coming up tomorrow on Main Street, we have an interesting interview with Brad Strand. He's a professor at North Dakota State University. He's talking youth sports, and boy, does he have a lot to say. Looking forward to bringing you that interview tomorrow on Main Street, and we hope you'll join us.